Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Let's let's get right into it. This morning we want to talk about uh, in the absence of memory. In the absence of memory. And I want to invite you to go with me to the book of Judges. And Judges chapter uh, 18, verse 27, and following, and, and we'll talk a little bit about that. This is um, Memorial Day weekend. I probably don't have to remind you of that. There's been enough commercials on TV advertising different sales and uh, probably you already have some plans for tomorrow, a day off. Anybody not have tomorrow off? We want to pity you. Oh, this is what it. This is the sacrifices our our medical health care uh, people uh, make for the rest of us. So thank you for doing that for working tomorrow. Um, uh, but uh, it's Memorial Day weekend, and I, I do want to just talk about the history of that for just a moment. It started as a day to decorate the graves of fallen soldiers from the Civil War. Did you know that? Memorial Day started as an opportunity to decorate specifically Union soldiers from the Civil War. And later it became uh, a time, and appropriately so, when we would recognize all those who were fallen in war. Uh, but I don't know how often we think about that particular thing when we think about Memorial Day. And, and it later after that became a time when we would remember our loved ones who are now gone and we would go to the cemetery and decorate their graves. And you can see how it, it steps away from one thing and, and it begins to be another thing. And then uh, it became a holiday that marks the beginning of summer by camping and barbecues. So can you see the, the train there from, from decorating graves in memorial to those who've fallen to it becoming for many people the main thrust of the whole day is we get to get out of town and, and begin summer. And I, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but but this really shows us the the evolution of change that takes place in regards to memory. And uh, we, we can see that many people don't know today what Memorial Day is really about. And we have a holiday that's called Memorial Day, but we don't remember what it's for. Isn't that interesting irony? A holiday called Memorial Day, but we don't remember what it's really all about. And it, it shows the way that important things can slip over time. We've been talking about the fear of the Lord, and I hope you know uh, we want to be a, a Christ-centered church. We want to remember the call that we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finish of our faith. If we're, to, if we're to maintain this Christian walk with the help of God, it's going to be because we've kept our eyes on Jesus. And Jesus is keeping his eyes on us. So we're glad for that, and we need to be Christ-centered. What happens when we begin to forget. We can look to examples in the Old Testament. And as we talked about the fear of the Lord, uh, I wanted to point you to a verse, and this is outside of our passage, but nevertheless it's good. Psalm 34, verse 11, come my children, David says, listen to me and I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Now if you look at what follows, you understand that he's not teaching them the disposition of fearing the Lord. He's teaching them what the fear of the Lord looks like. Uh, I think that the disposition of the fear of the Lord is something that can be taught. It's something that probably more is caught. But how to 
fear the Lord. What that looks like in day-to-day living, that's what David begins to refer to as he looks at some of the characteristics of those who fear the Lord. So he says, come, my children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So David here proposes the way of the fear of the Lord. Last week, uh, anybody remember the the three guys we talked about? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And uh, these guys were in captivity. And they what they did is they carried the fear of the Lord with them into a foreign land. In my understanding of this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't have the priesthood necessarily going with them, encouraging them in the fear of the Lord. As far as I understand, they would have been disconnected from their parents. So whatever job their parents had done to raise them, that particular aspect of that relationship was now over. And they went into the service of a foreign king with pressure all around to do the uh, ungodly thing, even the threat of death, and they, they maintained their fear of the Lord. And to me, that's a little bit heroic, isn't it? That you would do so when, when all the odds are stacked against you to continue to take your fear of the Lord that you got from somewhere in the past and to bring it into this present moment and to fear Him. And this tells me that, that they had a memory that can only happen through the memory of what it means to fear the Lord. But in this uh, sad story that we're going to look at today, the opposite's true. They didn't learn the fear of the Lord. They didn't remember their God. And in the absence of memory, there is no fear of God. In the absence of memory, there's no fear of God. When we disconnect uh, who God is and what he's like, and we don't remember him anymore, the fear of the Lord begins to subside. And I think that the testimony of Scripture will bear that out universally. That when people forgot their God, they forgot to fear God, and their behavior changed as a consequence. So in the absence of memory, there is no fear of God. And in the absence of memory, uh, there stands an idol. Because here's the interesting thing about us. We're created to be worshipers. Are you in agreement with that? That we're created to be worshipers. People are created to be worshipers by God. And if we don't worship God, some other idol will step into its place. There's no vacuum when it comes to worship. There's always something that fills that void, right? That's what a vacuum is. Something is trying to move in and to fill the void, and that's what happens when there's an absence of memory of the good things of God and who God is, what he's like, what he's done for us, then an idol will stand in his place. So I hope to do three things, and I want to do them real quick. The first is I want to describe the times. The second, I want to tell a story and then I want to unpack its meaning. So describe the times, tell a story, and un- unpack its meaning. So if you're going to understand the times of the book of Judges, why don't we read our text first? Okay, Chapter 18, look at verse 27 and following with me, and then we'll talk about the times this passage comes in. I think the scripture needs to be understood in context. All right, it says in verse um, 27, Then they... The Danites, I'm going to tell you who that is. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish against the people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rahab. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel. 
was uh, one of the sons of Jacob. Though the city used to be called Laish, there the Danites set up for themselves the idol, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. This is an interesting passage, and as I was reading through this, it struck me. Something about this struck me, and, and there's a sadness to all of this that the book of Judges moves towards this time when we realize what Israel or any people of God would look like if they forgot their God. That's what's happening in Judges. The key, really, to understanding the book of Judges is to understand that this is talking about what happens to a people when they forget their God. See, we, we often see this genera- generationally is that one will get on fire for God and then they pass on something to the next generation. And if we're not intentional, then somewhere along the line, that chain can be broken. Sometimes it's not broken by the will of the parents, obviously, that parents choose and do their best, but it's not always followed through. And that's sad. The story, though, is not over. And here's the thing about this is, the Bible isn't always cheerful. Man, I didn't come to church on Memorial Day weekend. I mean, it's one weekend that you almost kind of get a free pass not to go to church. I didn't get, come to church today to hear a sad story. Uh, well, I want to tell you the Bible isn't always cheerful. Are you with me? Are you okay with that? Uh, whether you're okay with it or not, it's true. But so, you know, whether we like it or we don't like it, we've got to learn to love it, as the wrestlers used to say. And so uh, neither is every sermon cheerful. But here's the thing, there's always hope, and cheerless Bible stories are told to us in the hope that we won't make the same mistakes that those people made. So it's not, it's not all bad. I think that we will uh, be encouraged today, but uh, then we can live if we learn from these sad stories. <laughs> we can learn to live in the fullness of the joy of the Lord. And the key to understanding the book of Judges is God's people are in, a, in the promised land but they've forsaken the promiser. They're in the promised land, but they've forsaken the promiser. And this happened in one generation's time. I don't know if you noticed this, but in the last probably decade and a half, maybe two decades, it seems like almost every sermon I heard, especially at youth camps and youth conventions, always focused on generation. You'd hear generation like 30 or 40 times. And maybe that was a theme through the whole church is, I want to talk about generation. Well, I'm here to tell you that while we've been talking about generation, some of our generation has slipped, slipped away from God, turned their backs on God. Judges chapter 2, verse uh, 10 through 13, and I think I have a portion of this up here on the screen. It says in chapter 2, verse 10, I'm going to read more than what's there. After that, after Joshua died, another generation, another part of that generation died. Uh, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, that's a Hebrew euphemism for dying, after they'd been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up that neither knew the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped the various gods of the peoples around them. They were more influenced by their culture than they were by their parents. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. So I'd like you to notice here 
that this generation grew up that neither knew the Lord. They didn't have relational knowledge of God, and they didn't know the stories about what God had done for them. They seemed to have disconnected the fact that they were in the land with how they got there. When we think about our prosperity as a nation, have we forgotten that we didn't get here on our own? Somebody, one of my professors in Bible college used to say, if you ever see a turtle on a fence post, you know that it didn't get there on its own. Somebody put it there. And what we are are turtles on fence posts. Somebody has put us there. We're there because God has has elevated us, and probably as a result of the prayers and the sacrifices of those who've gone before us. This takes us back to our Memorial Day, that there are, we are still living under the blessing of people who've gone before us. If you think you're getting blessed because it's just you, let's realize that we may still be living in the afterglow of what a previous generation has done. And what that means is it's time for us to take up our responsibility and go forward, not just for ourselves, but for the next generation. So I don't know who started the generational craze, but it seems to me that that's a big focus. And maybe God is trying to get our attention in it. Each generation has to be taught timeless truths. So somehow from one generation to another, timeless truths need to be passed on. From my experience with Christian parents, the best thing my parents did for me was first they showed me. Okay, I knew that what they were saying, they were living. They needed to have, they, there needed to be for me, I needed to see it. Okay. The second thing they did is they taught me. <laughs> my mind, when I was thinking through this, goes back to a time when I did something naughty, and my dad uh, decided he was going to spank me. And probably most of the time, my mom spanked me, as you all know, because I've said that before. And maybe my dad spanked me five times in my growing up time. The rest of the time, it was my mom. And I would, I will tell you right now, I'd rather have my dad <laughs> do it. My mom could get after it. So, this one time comes to mind. I don't know. I don't remember what I did, but he, in the kitchen, he spanked me. He made me lean over the, um, the benches at the table, and he spanked me. And then he said, uh, "Son, I spank you because I love you." We didn't have emotional conversations like this, except when it was spanking time. <laughs> I spank you because I love you, and here's what you did that was wrong. And uh, he taught me. He taught me this isn't what Christian kids do. This isn't what Christians do. And so I can't let this pass. We have to do something about it. So he showed me. He taught me. It wasn't just in that way. He taught in other ways. My, both my parents did. They, you know, sometimes as a, a teenager playing the devil's advocate, I'd argue the other side just to hear what their answers were. So if your parent and your teenagers are arguing the other side, it may not be that they're unconvinced. It might be that they're pushing to see how well you know why you stand for what you do. So I did that. And my mom held her ground. <laughs> it's good. Then they, they disciplined me, which I just described, so we won't go into that anymore. But uh, they, they put their foot down and said, we'll not tolerate these kinds of things. And then they prayed for me. Those four things are what my Christian parents did. It's not, it doesn't always turn out that way. I know that there are parents who do that, all of those things, and it doesn't quite turn out that way because there's still free will. But somehow in this story, Israel forgot God, and the the Bible portrays them as spiritually blind. The eyes are so important in the book of Judges. I don't know if you caught in our opening uh, reference today, but uh, Joe shared 
how from Psalm 19 that uh, the commands of the Lord, the ways of the Lord, they give sight to the eyes. That's interesting, isn't it? It's as if uh, the psalmist is saying there that it will allow you to spiritually see. Okay, it's more, That's uh, more than just physical sight because we can look at the surface of an object and uh, have no spiritual understanding. But it's something more than that. He gives sight uh, to our eyes. And so in the book of Judges, the eyes are important. So as we're describing the times, the thing that keeps coming up over and over again is uh, this word eyes. And ten times it, it uh, is used in a spiritual way. Uh, it says, and, and we just read one of those passages here in uh, Judges 2, and we'll come back to uh, reading in uh, Judges 18 in just a moment, but it said that the Israelites forsook the Lord and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's so important. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. See, the opinion that matters most about us, about what's right and wrong, is not what our culture says. It's not what we think about it. It's not what's trendy on the uh, scholarly level. What matters is how does God see this? Come on, are you with me on that? Because if we don't get that, we're going to fall into this generational slide that says that each person gets to decide truth for themselves. This is my truth. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before. This is my truth. Well, we don't get that luxury. God's the one who defines truth. Okay, That's so important. So we see uh, them doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. This uh, phrase occurs eight times in the book of Judges. That what they did is they offended God by going against his definitions of right and wrong. Okay? The other thing, the other time that eyes come up in a spiritual way, and, and you'll remember this, this is one of the keys to the book of Judges too, is in that day Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They did what was right in their own eyes. So the eyes are very important. Whose eyes are you trying to please? That's the question. Whose eyes are you trying to please? And so they were doing what was right in their own eyes. Every person well, this is how I see right, and this is how I see wrong, and it doesn't, that doesn't seem wrong to me. And we need to, as Christians, understand that we step back a little bit and have to ask the question, how does God see this? It doesn't matter if I see it as right and wrong. If God sees it as right and wrong, it doesn't matter if I don't see that as a wrong behavior. If God says it's wrong, it's wrong, and I need to adjust my attitude towards things to agree with his attitude towards things. Is that true? So when we talk about eyes, it means estimation. It refers to judgment as to whether something's good or bad. So the whole locus of uh, moral decision-making shifted in this generation that forgot God away from God being the moral source to themselves being the source of morality. And I want to suggest to you why this is important is because that's where we are today. Come, isn't that true? That's where we're at is that people have abandoned God, they've forgotten Him, and so who gets the right to decide what's right and wrong? The government? Does the government get... I hope not. That leads to totalitarianism, doesn't it? I hope it's not the government. I hope it's something beyond that. The problem with that kind of thinking is uh, there was a country in World War II, you may remember it, that decided what was right for them. And uh, they exterminated 11 million people. And they had the endorsement from their highest position saying this is the right behavior. And the world called them to it and said there's a, an authority that's higher 
than your national authority. Is that true or not? Maybe it's uh, people around us, they get to decide for us what's right and wrong, as if this whole morality thing's a social construct that we put together ourselves, like a, a contract that we have with one another, that we're not going to do this to each other because it hurts each other. Well, the problem is those kinds of things shift with time, and they don't, they don't always reflect what's in the best interest of both the individual and the group. And that's a problem. That leads to totalitarianism in the end. And then uh, maybe it's us. Maybe it's us. Maybe we're a bunch of little tyrants running around in our own kingdoms. And if anybody gets in our way, then we have the moral right to take them out because they're standing in the way of our personal freedom. Who gets the right to decide? God does. C.S. Lewis said in The Problem of Pain, if God is wiser than we, his judgments must differ from ours on many things, and not least on good and evil. What seems good to us may therefore not be good in his eyes, and what seems to us evil may not be evil in his eyes. Because we have the wrong kinds of definitions oftentimes. What God thought was wrong in Judges here, God's people did. God's people became their own judges of what was right and wrong. And this uh, leads to a philosophy that people are living in now called expressive individualism. Have you heard that before? Expressive individualism. This is where the individual finds meaning by giving expression to their inmost feelings and desires. So I have, to, I have to express myself. This is who I am. I have to express myself. The old philosophy on that was we subdue who we are to fit with what's right and wrong. In fact, that's Christianity, is that we, we put to death the flesh. That's Christianity. But so many don't realize that we're living in an era where the philosophy directly conflicts with Christianity. Expressive individualism, you cannot live that out as a Christian. You cannot live that out as a Christian. And, and simply what that is, is turning away from God, the God of Scriptures, and turning to self, that I'm the one who decides. This has given birth to a whole bunch of problems. Uh, truth isn't defined by God, it's defined by my own perspective. And we understand as Christians that we should bring our emotions and our thoughts and expose them to Scripture and judge them and change them to conform to truth. Do you realize that? Even our emotions, emotions are given the highest authority in our our age. Like, you can't tell somebody how they feel is wrong. Are you with me on that? If somebody feels sad, you can't tell them, don't, you shouldn't be feeling sad. That's a violation. But I'll tell you, in Scripture, God is constantly asking people, is what you're feeling right Come on, that's true, isn't it? And, and we need to confess a little bit. Let's give a little ground to God today. That sometimes we're not feeling the right thing. We're indulging the flesh. And we need to let God and, and other Christians be able to say to us, what you're doing, what you're feeling is not right. You need to rein it in. Right? You don't want to say, I'm, you don't want to say that's right because you know what that means, right? That we can't be indulgent anymore. We've got to subdue self. And I, I would suggest there's glory in doing that, but it's not always easy. So what we do is we bring our thoughts, our emotions, expose them to Scripture and judge them. But without God, we're each masters of our own identity. And so you can understand the present confusion that's going on in the world around us. It, that didn't arise overnight. 
It came because we detached ourselves from truth and we made our own eyes king. We did so by forgetting God. In those days, the Bible says Israel had no king. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And we do this in subtle ways in the church when we exalt our opinions over Scripture or our impressions over the Word of God. And people will say, I know the Bible says this, but I really feel God is leading me in this way. Do you have a right to challenge that? Man, the, the moment somebody says, God said to me, we all feel like we got to back up because we believe God speaks to us. But I challenge you that if somebody says God spoke to me in this way and it contradicts Scripture, you have a right to call, what's the right word for that? No, I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> There's another <laughs> gentler word for that. Yeah, to question it. It's good. So we do that in the church where we kind of subjugate the Word of God to our desires at times. The non-Christians just following out that philosophy further down the road. David Wells says, uh, as a definition of worldliness, we're going to talk about the next phase here. Worldliness is that system of values which has at its center fallen human perspective. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Okay, which displaces God and his word from the world, pushes God to the margins, doesn't let his word have the say that it should and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. Do you hear that? It makes sin look normal and, and righteousness look strange. That's worldliness. So to just see all that together, fallen human perspective, displacing God's word and truth, makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And that's the book of Judges. And we're here judging judges based on the word of God, and we realize there's something wrong in Israel. Are you with me? There's something wrong in Israel. When you read Judges, if you don't feel like there's something wrong here, this is God's people. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his call to holiness. They've received the first five books of the Bible. They've received the commands in Deuteronomy, right? All of that, and this is what's going on here. There's something wrong here. But from their perspective, it was normal. Righteousness was strange. So here's the story, all right? Let's talk about this story. And I'm not going to read it for you, but it's in uh, part of 17 and 18. A man from Ephraim, he stole a, uh, 1,100 shekels of silver from his mom. Okay? Then he must have got feeling guilty about it because he says to his mom, I, I'm the one who stole your money. You don't have to look for it anymore. And so he confesses to her and he returns it. And the Bible says something strange here, which I hope you recognize as a red flag right away. In Judges 17.3, it says, When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly, listen, I solemnly consecrate this silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I solemnly dedicate this to the Lord for my son to make an idol. What's wrong with that? Everything's wrong with that. Like, you don't consecrate something to the Lord just to take it back and do something wicked with it. Okay? And then he, she says, and then I'll give it back to you. So this is a religious confusion. I remember years ago hearing of a, a well-known uh, rapper whose album was filled with filthiness and profanity and cop-killing probably. But them uh, talking about, and they're talking about sleeping with numerous women and all of this. And then he wanted to thank the Lord uh, for giving him success. 
<laughs> How do you reconcile that? I don't get it. Uh, do you think God was pleased that he had such wonderful success at filling the minds of our culture with filth? Do you think he was pleased? And maybe he wasn't taught any better. Maybe he wasn't taught to bring the lordship of Christ into his everyday living. But there's something wrong with that. That's confusion. The man uh, here built a shrine for his idol, and then he made an ephod, so he's mimicking true religion. He installs his own priest, which we later are going to find out is a descendant of Moses. How do you figure that happened? He had his own motives, too. In chapter 17, verse 13, he says, Now look that uh, now I know that the Lord will make me rich because I have my own priest. So what's the purpose of religion in his life? It's not to obey God. It's not to please God. It's he wants God to bless him. He wants to be rich. It's not out of service for God. It's not I'm following after God. He has a God that's following after him. This is what happens when we forget. We return to superstition. I don't want us to forget. Let's make it a priority not to forget. God gets to have things his way. And I don't mean here that we uh, live without a moment's peace because we're afraid we're displeasing God all the time, but we can find out what really pleases him and live that way. Don't settle for superstitions like this guy. All right, so further along in the story, a group of Danites come through the area of this Ephraimite. They're traveling through his territory, and they find out he's got this idol and a shrine and his own priest. The guy was probably bragging about it. So they find out about it, and they're like, that sounds really convenient, really wonderful. To have your own little religion, you don't have to submit to the real God. You can have things your way. Who is it? Is it Burger King that says, have it your way? Okay, this is a Burger King religion. Have it your way. So the Danites steal his idol and his priest, and they take it away. And the guy, what would you do if your religion was stolen? This guy is sobbing, running after them, trying to get it back. Don't ever follow a God that somebody can steal from you. You know what I mean by that? So they, uh, the Danites uh, took the, the, guy to, the, the God, the idol, and uh, his, his priest, so they thought it had some value, so they stole it. And uh, they threatened to kill him if he didn't. the man didn't just go back home. And so he was stripped of his idol and his priest. And I'll tell you, as I was reading through this, I thought he's better for it. So the Danites took it to their principal city, which we don't even know that they have yet because this hasn't happened. They take the idol. And then they go destroy this peace-loving people that are living on the borders of their territory and uh, they raise the city to the ground, you know, raise, not the one kind of raise, the other kind of raise where you burn it down. And they kill all the inhabitants. The city's name uh, is Laish, okay? And then they rename Laish after their ancestor, their tribe name, Dan. And so you maybe will hear in the Bible sometimes when they describe geographically from here to there, they always say from Dan in the north till Beersheba in the south. Dan is the furthermost city. Okay, It's on about the same parallel as Tyre, if you know your map. Uh, it's way up there. It's way on the northern border. And in fact, uh, this place is about uh, somewhere around 90 miles from Shiloh and probably 100 miles from 
Jerusalem. So it's a long way for them to go to pilgrimages. So it's convenient for them to have a shrine there that they can just worship as they want to. So they take their God, they put it in their principal city, Dan. And you remember hearing about that, Dan, uh, again, on the north. Uh, It was here that they set up the idol. And set up means in verse, um, what is that, verse 13? No, sorry, verse 31. They continued to use the idol. So set up here or continued to use means that they were idolatrous. They were worshiping. Uh, at this idol, the whole time the tabernacle was in Shiloh. It was a religion of convenience. And convenient religion means that uh, you value what you want over what God wants. You do what's easy, not what's pleasing. They don't have to go to Shiloh on foot, which is 90 miles. They can go to their town square, which is right there. And what does this say when convenience wins over doing things the right way? Well, they've forgotten God, so they don't value him. They don't fear him. They worship in their own way. The NIV says they continued to use the idol uh, Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. The New American Standard Bible says, so they, they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he had made, all the time that the house of the Lord was in Shiloh, the New English translation, they worshipped Micah's carved image the whole time God's authorized shrine was in Shiloh. It's obvious what's being said here. There was a man-made religion established in Dan, which rivaled true worship in Shiloh. Do you get that? That, that it's not either or or it's not both and, it's one or the other. And what they're doing is they've, they've decided that they're going to set up a rival. They may not have thought of it as a rival, but it became a rival to the one true God. There were, they, these were not Israel's best times. These were not Israel's best times. And I would suggest to you that in this story, though they conquered Laish, which was a Canaanite city, what really happened is Laish conquered them. Because what they were doing is they felt like they were extending the kingdom of God, but what they were really doing was creating an area for their own idolatry. So it's not a win. It's not a win for them. It's a loss. It's not their best times. Okay, It seems like their hearts were being taken captive by idolatry, but that sounds a little too passive because they were not hapless victims of idolatry. They were not. They were, they were the engineers of their own idolatry, and that's a really sad state of affairs. And here's the other thing that Scripture wants to show us in kind of a shocking way. In verse 30, if you go back one verse, there the Danites set up for themselves the idol, Jonathan, son of Gershom. I'd like you to keep in mind that when it says son of, this means descendant. It doesn't have to be in the hard and fast sense that we would use son. It means descendant of, and we do know that Gershom is a son of Moses, but this could be a great-grandson or further. Okay, So whoever it is, it's related to Moses. And we're supposed to say, we're supposed to be shocked here and realize, how can this be? Moses, who gave them the law that said, you shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. His son, his grandson, his descendant, is the priest at a shrine where they're worshiping an idol. This is how far it goes when people forget God. What does it mean to forget God here? Forgetting causes us to get God wrong. 
If we don't know what God is like, we'll invent a God of our own understanding. If we get God wrong, we're going to do things our way and not his way. Okay? So if we forget him, we'll get him wrong. If we get him wrong, we'll do things our way and not his way. And when we do things our way and not his way, there are problems that follow. If you look at the next chapter, we're not going to get into that, but you're going to find a piece of violence here that you would be surprised to find in the Bible. It describes a man who is traveling through a territory that's Israel, and it's worse than traveling through a pagan territory. The men come out, try to take this man captive and sleep with him. You already have homosexual behavior coming into this situation. And the man pushes out his concubine, and they exploit her, and they rape her all night. And then the man finds her dead the next morning, and they cut her up into 12 pieces and her all over Israel, and there begins to be a civil war. This is what happened when people forgot God. There was violence in the streets. I would ask you to do a quick estimate. Do you think we're better off now that we're so liberated from our Christian heritage, or do you think we're worse off? And so this can't be an abstract thing where we go, yeah, it's too bad that the country is turning away from God. It it comes home to roost. What are we doing in our hearts? Right? This is is a decision each one of us has. Because we don't like having an American thing that America is doing. America is doing what its individuals are doing. If if the United States is going to be a strong nation and Christian, it's going to be because it has Christian people living in it. God's not saving countries. He's saving individuals. Are you with me? And so this comes home to roost. What is, how does God respond to this? Thomas Traherne, in one of his, uh, he wrote a book called Centuries of Meditations. Listen to this. I thought this was kind of fascinating. Love can forbear, and when he means love, he's personifying God. Love can forbear, and love can forgive, but love can never be reconciled to unlovely, an unlovely object. He can never, therefore, be reconciled to your sin because sin itself is incapable of being altered. But he may be reconciled to your person because that may be restored. Do you hear what that's saying? God is a holy God, and he has to transform us. We sing, come just as you are, or uh, what's what's the other hymn I'm thinking of there? Just as I am. There we go. Remember that one? Just as I am, we come to him just as we are, but we have to be transformed. God, doesn't, God loves us enough he doesn't leave us where we are. We often mistake when we talk about love, we often mistake kindness with love. And when we hear God is love, we typically take that, or people do, hopefully we don't, and we take the cultural definition and we, we backfill it into the word love. And we say, oh, well, if he's love, then he must be love according to our cultural definition of love. And that's not the way God is. Okay, it's a mistake. We think of, when we think of love, we're, we think of what we're talking about is kindness. So we often mistake kindness for love, and they're not the same thing. There is kindness in love, but if kindness is separated from the other elements in love, it becomes a kind of indifference. It's out of kindness to animals which leads people to kill them so that they won't suffer. Kindness doesn't care so much whether its object is bad or good, just that it escapes suffering. And I don't believe with animals this is necessarily wrong. I had a dog when I was a little boy, and I named it Mike. 
and uh, Mike was some kind of a black dog. I don't know what the actual breed was. It probably was a mutt, but one day, we didn't have him very long, and one day in the backyard, I just noticed he looked like he was sweating, <laughs> and so we, my mom took Mike in and gave him a bath, and uh, Mike, uh, we took him to the vet and found out there was something wrong with him. I don't even know what it was to this day, and all the people who knew are passed on now, but he was sick, and he had to be taken to the vet and put down. I don't think that was wrong, okay, but when it comes to people, it's different. This is why Christians don't believe in euthanasia, because we, we believe that there's value and, and that God is doing something and that he has sovereign oversight into people's lives. Okay, so as we think about that, we don't do that. You know, uh, it's different with people because people are eternal and have God-ordained purpose to be conformed to the image of Christ. To use another other language, we're, we're supposed to be perfecting and being made holy, and, and uh, God is fitting us for heaven. So kindness and love are not the same. And so when people think of God as kind and then they hear about him judging his people in the book of Judges, they wonder where the problem is. And God loves us enough that he won't leave us in our sinful condition. C.S. Lewis said in The Problem of Pain, it's for people whom we care nothing about that we demand happiness on any terms. With our friends, our lovers, our children, we are exacting and could rather see them suffer much than be happy and contemptible and estranging modes. If God is love, he is something more than mere kindness. When Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man, not that he has some disinterested because really indifferent concern for our welfare, but that an awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. You ask for a loving God and you have one, and he loves us enough that he won't keep us in our situation. The great spirit you so delightly, you so uh, lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible, terrible aspect is present. He goes on to say, not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, nor the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host uh, who feeds responsible, who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the world's persistent as the artist's love for his work, despotic as a man's love for his dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for his child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. How this should be, I don't know. It passes reason to explain why any creatures, not to say creatures such as we are, should have a value so prodigious in their creator's eyes. That's the kind of God we serve. Okay, so to ask that God love, uh, God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask God to cease to be God because he is what he is. His love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. That's the God we serve. Uh, so I'd ask you, just apply this to the situation with somebody you love. If you're going into a situation and your spouse has something in their teeth, do you just sit back and watch? Or do you say something? Their flies open. I would just ask you to consider that. What about your kid going to the graduation? Would you let them go wearing stinky, stained clothes? Or would you want them looking their best? 
Think about it. Think about that the way that we love others is we push them towards their best. And God is the ultimate fulfillment of that. He loves us enough. He won't leave us the way we are. These people had forgotten their God, but God won't forget them, and he won't let them completely forget him. He's going to be all up in the business of getting them back and restored. Are you with me on that? So next time we find ourselves forgetting God, don't be surprised if God sends us a wake-up call. He wants to strip us of our idols. He wants to remove from us the superstitions that we have about him so that we know him in truth and can please him and be these creatures fit for heaven. He's making us into something. We're not called to be idolaters. Idolatry robs the soul of relationship with God. And we're intended to live with him forever, right? Not on clouds playing harps. God's got some purpose for us, and he's got resurrected bodies for us, and it's going to be as real as what we know right now. More real, as a matter of fact. It's going to be fabulous. So I would encourage you uh, to look to that and let's put away our idols. Let's not forget God's. If you're, if you're a parent, uh, I want to encourage you. Uh, there's a couple resources I thought we might show, and it seems that those are gone now. My slideshow might have missed those. There's a book by Sean McDowell and uh, I think Wallace, Sean McDowell and Wallace. There we go. Thank you. McDowell and Wallace, so the next generation will know, preparing young Christians for a changing world. And then the next one I thought was a really provocative title, hey, Mama Bear. Do you have that one? There we go. Ferrer is the editor, Mama Bear Apologetics, Empowering Your Kids to Challenge Cultural Lies. And this lady also has one uh, on, um, I don't remember exactly how it's titled, but it's Mama Bear Apologetics and it's on sexual ethics. And it talks about uh, disarming the lies that our culture has about sex. So if you're interested and you're a parent, this is one of the ways we can help our next generation not forget. Uh, because it's important that we pass on a cultural legacy. I'm not a parent, but I know lots of parents out there. I want to equip you with resources to be able to respond because these lies are more and more pervasive. And, uh, if, and our kids are eating up. All the time they're at school, when they're around their friends, on television, on social media, on YouTube, they're eating up expressive individualism. And we've got to stem that somehow. And we've got to stem it in ourselves too. So why don't we stand today? Thanks for your gracious attention. Let me call us to a response this morning. First of all, if you're finding in your life that there is some idol, and it's not going to look like a little wooden statue or something made out of silver like this guy made. It's going to be something else. What fascinates me is how entrenched idols can become. Do you realize that all the time that that was in Shiloh, was a couple hundred years, these people had that idol fixed in the center of their city for everybody to worship? It became entrenched, and so it needed to be gotten rid of. And after that went away, you remember that Jeroboam came in and he set up a golden calf in that same city. So this is a city filled with idolatry. And what we have to do is we have to uproot and cast away our idols. God can help us to do that. The hard thing about idols, there are some idols that we need to do away with completely. And there are some idols that are in place that they need to find their proper place. 
For example, if you're making an idol out of your children, you can't get rid of them. Okay? God won't let you. You've got a responsibility. But what you have to do is find the proper place and let God be in the proper place. And if you do that, I, th- I think Scripture's true. You'll love them more. You will not love your kids best by I- idolizing them. You'll love, if you love God best, it puts everything else in its proper place. The second thing we need to do is we need to take seriously God's Word. It has priority over our feelings. It has priority over our thoughts and our moral decisions. That if the Bible says it's right, we do it. And if it says it's wrong, we don't do it. And we follow the Word of God. And it gets the right to dictate that. Otherwise, we're just, we're just expressive individualists. If we're not doing that, we're going to fall into the cultural course. Third thing is we need to commit ourselves to influence our world around us. You may feel, I don't know if we can win this one. God wins in the end. Okay, God wins in the end. But the question Jesus asked is, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Is there going to be faith? Is there going to be people looking to God? It might be that the times get darker and darker. I don't know. But what it seems to me is that as the end approaches, we will face terrible times. And so what we may think is we may not win a culture, but we will win individuals. We need to win individuals. And the culture of God will succeed in the end. Come on, do you know what I mean? It will the kingdoms of our Lord will, the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he'll rule forever and ever. Let's bow our heads, take a moment here to respond. Lord, you see our hearts. If there's anything here that is an area where you're wanting to deal with us, I pray, Lord, that you would stir our heart right now. If there's an idol that needs to be cast away, I pray you help us to recognize it and to have the courage to do it. If there's something that needs to be put in its proper place, we pray that you would help us to see wisdom to do that, Lord, today. And God, I pray that you'd help us here today to take your word seriously, not to let our emotions or our thoughts, our intuitions be our guide, but to hear from the word of God and let it speak to us and be light to our eyes, transforming the fool into the wise. We pray for your help there. And help us to recognize our tendencies because maybe for some of us it's so entrenched that we don't even see it for what it is. Stir us today, we pray. God, I pray for every parent and grandparent, every person of influence, everybody who maybe has a a sphere of influence in this world, I pray that you would help us to stand for what's right and true and to bring your kingdom down, to represent the kingdom of God in our world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.